0: Hello, and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. We'll do the official start for a minute. How should I introduce you?
1: You know, I think I'll default to the the bio that I sent you. It's so little of what I feel like I'm up to in life right now. Yeah, and I feel very um, feel like life is tenderizing me pretty Mm -hmm. thoroughly, and I'm hoping to um, to live what I'm hoping for. And so talking to you is both exciting and a little scary because if we connect, as I hope, then I'll have to change, and sometimes that's hard. And and I want to, but mm-hmm. if we penetrate to something that's really true, um, you know, I'm just trying to do my best right now, Charles.
0: Mm. As an introduction, that tenderizing <laughs> you. I'll introduce you like that. This is Julie Esterly, and life is tenderizing her.
1: Very accurate right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, like last night, I was working on some stuff for the podcast, and I called a friend, and her husband had died a few hours before. And um, how, do I, how do I stay open? How does one stay open? And um, meeting things with love and regard and um, that's, that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, so this is always the dilemma I have when I'm doing a podcast, because do I have the conversation that I would have if it were just you and me? Mm-hmm. Or do we kind of act in a performance that is for some audience that we imagine is going to listen to it? And I feel like we should go with the first one.
1: I'm totally with you why are we living our lives if not to do that? And I think if it is um, real for us, some people will get it and maybe some won't. Mm -hmm. But it's not a popularity contest anymore. It's a matter of life and death, you know? Uh (laughs) Did you see Greta last night on Democracy? I saw her on Democracy Now! You know, she came in on her sailboat yesterday Mm -hmm. and she was so cute. She just told the truth as she could get it, and then mm-hmm. she went, "Like, did I do okay?" Uh-huh. It was so, it was so genuine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I also trust uh, you, and I trust myself to find a way that that'll work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There's a lot going on. I mean, in in your uh, email you know i asked for a two sentence bio and you spoke of all these uh, losses that are happening in your life illnesses and deaths and you know you mentioned greta thunberg the losses that are happening on the planet in the amazon um what do you do with that
1: yeah i think that is the question for those of us who are willing to feel is how do we meet what's coming to us and stay um, open in a healthy way to stay available and yet setting boundaries and taking time to refresh and renew. um, It's a big question. Almost everybody I know, you know, they're good people. Yet the the barrage, if you want to put it that way, is pretty heavy Mm -hmm. and what i think is um and one of the reasons i'm interested in your work is as we become more whole with all of creation we can be nourished by it you know before we started this i just stood outside on my deck on my back area in the sun and a red-tailed hawk came down in a tree close by and cried out and I just tried to breathe and be filled with that and forget or um, lose my sense of worry or my sense of doing well and um, so I turn to the resources that I've developed to through my practice, my uh, years of spiritual practice and um, what about you? Yeah.
0: What's coming to my mind is how much is available all the time, how much beauty, how much pleasure. Um, You know, I'm looking out the window right now, beautiful blue sky, trees, the leaves are waving in the breeze against the sky. And I sometimes think of people who are in prison and they get transferred to a room that that has a window like 30 feet up and they get to see a little corner of sky. And sometimes they see a cloud edge across that window. And they get such, such pleasure from that. For me, that offers a peek of what is available if I'm, if I can do what you're describing and just let go of everything that's getting in the way of it. And it is akin to me to the feeling that I get when I'm um, spending time with my mother. Just how precious every moment of this sacred being is. And and then I turn it to myself too, because. In a way, and actually this is something I'd like to talk to you about, I'm going to die someday. Um, The whole world dies with me because I'm no longer an observer of that world. So in a way, it's not just my death, it's the death of all things. If I take that in, can that give me the same appreciation for every being and every moment? Um, Or maybe it isn't the death of all things. Maybe I have, after I pass on, I do actually pass on and there's a place I pass on to, and I'm not snuffed out like a candle. Um, what, do you, what do you think about those, those musings?
1: You know, I think a lot of things about it, but one thing is, I don't know. I wouldn't, I'm not someone who would say, I know. But when my mom was dying last month, she spoke, I wasn't in the room, but to mm-hmm. one of her um, caregivers, she mentioned seeing her mom and her dad and her sister and the caregiver was so great. She's been with mm-hmm. a lot of people dying. And she mm-hmm. said, I've had people who the room filled up. They were talking to so many people. I had to tell them to go away and let the person rest. And there's a really interesting Ted talk on this. Um, it's by, uh, it's on Baltimore TEDx, And the guy's name is Christopher her and the it's called i see dead people and he's mm-hmm. a medical doctor and a palliative care doc hospice doc and they're doing research and they can estimate now when someone's going to die more closely by how many visitations they're having than by their physical signs wow so, so what do we know i mean we don't know and there are lots of people who spent are really deeply involved in that uh, afterlife work Mm-hmm. I, I um, have some, some interest and I'm deeply interested in those beings mythically who help people transition. Mm-hmm. In all the spiritual traditions, there's the role of the person who helps people will cross the river Styx. Yeah. Like Charon or Charon
0: mm-hmm. or
1: Vanth, you know. And so I'm interested in that, but um, it's not my major concentration right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me what is your major concentration? I don't really know that much about you. It's just, we were very enthusiastically introduced. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, let's follow that.
1: Yes. And that was um, so generous and brave of you in a way to do that. Um, Carrie reminded the young woman in the group in the Natural Death Care Initiative, um, reminded me of the woman, and I've forgotten her name, Laura, maybe, who spoke at the beginning of your metaphysics and mystery that same kind of um, genuineness and enthusiasm. And so so my main concentration right now is what we talked about in the beginning, and that's trying to, it's a little uh, hackneyed, but stay in the moment, really, really truly, and find a way to be of greater service. Mm-hmm. And so even before all the losses that have happened in the, nat- the last six months to a year, I got um, what I call guidance, you know, insight to change what I was doing. So I began to release some things to make space. And I'm grateful that I got that because I feel that I'm trying to be more of more service for climate change. And climate change is, um, I just really was meditating on what were the important things and it's climate change for me. And as a secondary thing, um, peace in Jerusalem, Mm. Um, my one of my teachers, Sufi teacher said, if there's peace in Jerusalem, there'll be peace in the world. Mm -hmm. But right now I'm more focused on climate change. And by that, I mean the big, big picture, which I think is why I'm interested in the conversations that you're having. Mm -hmm. Because, you know one of the the micro see i've got micro mid and macro things i'm focused uh-huh. on and and maybe mid is this um natural death care initiative mm-hmm. so how we're dying besides sucking is for people it's destroying the earth and i feel like in meeting us being able to be present uh and meet death in a different way we can contribute it might be small but we can make a contribution to a regenerative way of living. Mm -hmm. So.
0: I I agree that the way we're dying is destroying the earth. Um, I don't think it's a matter of carbon dioxide though, that the destruction is happening. I think it's by kind of what I was saying before that you mentioned this too in your letter, the denial of death, that for one thing, it, obscures the sacredness of all of this world and helps us treat it as other than sacred. And the denial of death also perpetuates an illusion that I will be here forever. And in that illusion, it makes sense for me to accumulate and control and invest and pile up my possessions because I'm going to have them forever. But when I am no longer in that illusion, which... (laughs) You know, the older I get, the harder it is to hold that illusion. Yet, you know, the culture really tries to get us to hold on to that illusion of our, of our permanence. But the, the more that that illusion dissolves, the less sense it makes for me to accumulate anything. Because I can't take it with me. Not only physical possessions or money, but also, you know, reputation. I mean, anything that accrues to my separate self is worthless, mm-hmm. viewed through the eyes of death. And so I think that our cultures, by that I mean like the dominant culture or modernity, um, our culture's way of dying is absolutely interwoven with the world-destroying machine. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what you were talking about, but I'd like to hear what you, what you have to say about about that.
1: I totally agree. And um, I think a, there's a huge movement to resacralize death. And that's a good thing. Um, I feel so uh, encouraged and honored by all the people that I'm working with and that are working in a bigger um, sphere. But it does come down to our fear of death. And I almost died a lot when I was growing up. So I think that my fear of death was big, is big. I would not say that's gone. But um, like so many things, when you work with it, you become less afraid. You know, you become more comfortable. And so one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is that people used to take care of their own. That's how it's said in in the movement, in the natural death movement, which is a big movement. We used to take care of, of those who died, our friends and our families. So if you had someone that died, like when my mom died last month, we were with her. We held her, we were touching her. When she died, we washed her body with um, lavender, no, with rose oil that a friend had brought me from Turkey. Uh, my sisters, her main caregiver, we took care of her. We put clothes on her. We put a little makeup on her. And my parents didn't really want any ceremony or memorial, but we had a spontaneous one there with my dad and those of us who were there, my niece and two of my sisters and the caregiver, we had this, um, this very meaningful, though brief, time with her. Uh, so what happened was, just to throw in a little history, is in the Civil War, so many young men died, and the people wanted their bodies back, that that's when they started to um, use um, things to... Embody uh, to, mm-hmm. to um, embalm, yeah, yeah, embalm, embalm, and so embalming became gradually uh, industrialized uh, corporate <laughs> entity, mm-hmm. and um, so no one's around people that die very much, or like you when you, I, I'm not sure what your story when you were young, but like Carrie's story, and I have similar ones, besides almost dying myself. When my grandfather died, I wasn't allowed to go. It was just, oh, really, my, he was my mom's, just, she loved him, and she was so sad, but no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. So here this thing becomes un, No one. You can't meet it. You can't go up to it, you know? And just like um, fear, if you can turn toward it and feel it, it's so much easier to, to not be so afraid. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that um, that's why people do a lot of what they do, is to avoid the fear of death Mm -hmm. and that sense of, you know, we all want to mean something and we all want to belong. And so those currents in us are strong, but uh, we make dopey choices about how how to belong and how to be unified, how to experience oneness. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, resisting the temptation to start talking about climate change okay. simply because I've, I have such strong opinions about it at this point. Um,
1: and, you know, I don't think we need to go there because yeah. other people are covering it so beautifully. There's lots of literature about what cremation does there's yeah. lots of literature about what burial does, and it's compelling that you know we could build every year a new Golden Gate Bridge, and then there are also people who are writing about it so potently, like Paul Hawken and Drawdown, Bill McKibben and Falter, yeah. all those people. So let's talk about why. What happened when you were young?
0: <laughs> okay, um, I, w- I would like to. Yeah, I'll get there, but I want to say just as a footnote, almost that the reason that I'm I'm resisting the impulse and I will continue to resist it is that what I'm saying about the issue is so different from what all the people you mentioned are saying. Um, And I really resist what I call carbon reductionism. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Um, I, I know that from your work.
0: Yeah. But anyway, I am more interested in my own history with death because I had this moment and maybe you can speak to it and maybe it rings familiar to you as well when i was i think probably 6 years old lying in my bed at night and contemplating death contemplating what i had been taught was death which and not directly taught but basically it's ambient in in modern thinking that death is the total annihilation of the self like a candle flame being snuffed out and i was lying in bed just contemplating not existing and it was this paralyzing terror that overtook me, that stayed with me. It was always lurking in the background, preventing me from fully ever enjoying any moment. Because what is there to enjoy when when this horrible thing is about to happen? Relatively speaking, I mean, it seems when you're a kid or a young man, it seems like it's a very, very long time in the future. But on some level, you know that, One day, all of your life will be behind you and what's in front of you is a very, very tiny little bit. And I imagined, and then I had a um, medicine journey recently in which I was fast forwarded to my dying process uh, where I was in tremendous physical discomfort, struggling for each breath, each breath getting harder and harder and harder. And being in that place where, my entire existence from now on is immense suffering followed by annihilation so mm-hmm. i don't it's too terrible to bear yet the alternative is worse you know that was the feeling um, not necessarily the the thought but that was the feeling of hell basically and it was it was that the medicine was bringing that fear that i had taken in at six years old, bringing it to the surface and essentially saying, here's why you're always a little bit anxious. Here's why you never feel that everything is totally okay in the world. It's because this hidden thing has, you've been carrying this hidden thing and now I'm going to bring it to the surface for you, for you to feel it again. Uh, So that happened. And I don't know, I can't say that it's erased my fear of death. It's changed it somehow.
1: How so? How did it change it?
0: Um, it's like you were saying, you know, I'm, I'm getting more familiar with it. it. And somehow it's getting less scary, even though that particular moment that I previewed um, might still happen. And it might not, you know, I could die in a very different way than that. Um, I just have the feeling that it's operating on me, that that experience is operating on me. Yeah, yeah.
1: that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm. I, I was talking to this friend last night whose husband died a few hours before we spoke. And all I could do is be there with her, you know, just like be just accountable, accountable as her friend and as someone who could feel her suffering and be present. I've had the fortune to have a lot of models of people who have pointed some ways for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I could say a little bit about those people um, because what they, how they behaved and what they said helped me have more... Ability to turn toward that moment—it's the—it's the human moment, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? how do we turn? Like in, in um, both Judaism and in almost all of the world's religions, there's a word "ta'wab." It's called in in Islam, and "tauba." It means to turn toward, because our tendency is to want to turn away. Mm-hmm from that kind of terror and that inability to breathe instead of turning toward it and being having the um courage or the strength of heart to, to walk in the fire you know and mm-hmm. sufism there's a saying we, we I put my face in the burning sand you know yeah. to just go there but i had a um I had one of my great mentors, Charlotte Silver, and I studied with her in her late 80s. I studied with her. She gave the first experiential workshop at Estlin, where where you'll be soon. And um, I studied with her from her late 80s till she died at 102. And as she was coming close to the end of her life, she said that she still felt in herself a resistance in herself to her death. And that she could be so, um, not cavalier, but this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to find out about my death and about the resistance. Or Adrienne Rich, who I, a poet here, she lived in Santa Cruz, and um, I've always been inspired by her work, and I was wanted to see her speak at the bookshop Santa Cruz, which is I hope you'll come there. It's our fantastic bookshop, you know, independent Mm -hmm. bookstore. And she was speaking and my, I had two teens with me at the time and all I caught was one line. And she said, I'm contemplating the inevitable divestiture of my body and the implications. And I thought, gosh, good on you, you know, to, and good on you for being six years old and contemplating this enormous question. That I think all we can meet it with is letting our hearts be broken, because death is natural, but that doesn't mean it's not sad and yeah. heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, you know, um, one thing that you know, like what I what I mentioned. That, um, that moment when I was six, you know, and, and that cultural perception of death, the modern scientific understanding of death, like that's definitely part of my psyche. But there's also other parts that are more ancient. For example, the part that, like as you were saying, being present with um, a dying person or being present with people who have had a great loss, who have lost a loved one, It feels so significant to be doing that. It feels like that's the most important thing in the world that you could be doing. Whereas the modern mind would say, well, that's not important because that person's dying anyway. And Mm -hmm. whatever happens in those final moments are wasted basically because they die and they're gone, you know, but that is, is so contrary to everything that I've learned to trust about how to navigate this world. And so I'm left with, you know, if I, if I accept that, that way of knowing and the knowledge that comes from it, then I really have to start questioning the cultural story of death that I was given because it is incompatible with the knowing of the significance and importance of those moments. And to like be there for my loved ones, you know, um, may this not happen soon, but if my mother passes or my father, it's the most important thing in the world that I am present. I I mean, I know that. There's no force in the universe that can convince me otherwise.
1: So just toss the cultural norm. Just toss it. It's like, like Katie Butler who's written some great books. She's a journalist and some great books. She was speaking recently, I heard her and she said, take it back, people. (laughs) Take Uh it back. So that's what, Uh, so many people in so many ways are just saying that that's not what my being says is true. And um, that doesn't mean it's hard to extricate ourselves from it, but the more people that you're around that feel, and and what's really interesting is you almost universally hear people who are working in end of life,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: care, green funerals, um, I mean, uh, home funerals, green burials, I say it was a calling. Mm-hmm. And they, it's so, you hear it so much, it's sort of like a little joke. Not that it's a joke, it's just that people feel it. Their soul says, this is important. I mm-hmm. need to be here doing this. And
0: um, yeah. Another thing that's coming to mind, maybe it's a little bit of a change of topic, but most cultures that I know of, they universally saw death and death and whatever it might be burial or whatever death rituals there were as being a really important communication between this world and the earth, this world and other worlds. Mm -hmm. And if you look at modern burial practices from that standpoint and ask what kind of communication are we delivering to the earth? um, It's not a very respectful (laughs) or healthy communication. And so here's another you know, if if, if a ritual... <laughs> That's
1: putting it mildly.
0: <laughs> right. So if a ritual is, in a sense, a prayer that invites the world to be in alignment with the story that the ritual comes from, we can ask, what kind of prayer are we making with embalming and lead caskets and all that kind of stuff? And what new prayer are we issuing when... When we die, we make a gift of our corpse to the soil, for example. To me, that, that is a ritual of reunion. It's accepting our earthiness and our, our participation and our belonging in earth and in inviting ourselves back into an intimate relation. Like, how intimate can you get, you know, but to return to the earth? So inviting ourselves back into an intimate relationship to earth and accepting earth as a companion again, rather than something that we try to stay away from as long as possible, centuries, millennia after death. I mean, gosh, I don't know how long a lead line cassock can last, but it could be millions of years, you know?
1: (laughs) Not that long, but a long time.
0: Okay. So, so like that is a powerful ritual, you know, burying something in the earth. That is a powerful ritual. And I believe that as more people enact a different ritual, that it's going to have totally mind-boggling, unpredictable consequences that will quicken our entry into a healing relationship with the planet.
1: So, so I want to jump back to what you said. You first asked, what kind of prayer is that? And it's a prayer of terror. Hmm. The um, utilization of enormous parts of our being, the planet being, to keep us as separate from death as possible it's a prayer of terror Mm -hmm. and the prayer of reunion is, um, I mean, the implications are in every sphere. And that's what you you're speaking about is what I think the, um, the movement is about that longing for reunion, that longing to belong. And so I would say that it's not so much, since we are the earth i mean we it's not separate
0: mm-hmm.
1: there there is possibly a union or a reunion from our separate embodied self but all that when we honor that we are all part of the creation then it will have all those reverberations that you are just speaking so eloquently about That's why the the movement is um, a critical piece of what we call climate change because it's not just about the carbon sequestration, although I think that's important because people don't know about it. It's like so many things. They don't understand what cremation does Mm -hmm. or they don't really know about burial. And so coming back to how can we include death back into life how can we resacralize it, re-whole it? Is, um, that's the question.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know like, the basic concept of green burial and stuff, but like, is it even legal in all states or most states?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And um, also the thing that, one of the places that I think is a great place to start is that people, even before people die, it takes a lot of people and energy to die at home. Mm -hmm. That's where people want to die, but it takes a lot of community. Mm -hmm. So you have to formulate and really focus on community and belonging. So it it functions there. And then when someone dies, um, there's so many rituals that can go about that. And I think I join you in the feeling that rituals enable us to be more unified and more human. Um, rituals are part of our ancient history and they continue to be. So, there are rituals, and one of them is home funerals. And having a um, preparing a loved one's body at home, keeping them at home, having friends and neighbors and family come that's totally legal mm-hmm. and it's totally doable and people don't know. They just like, you know, they just don't know that they can do that. And I wanted to make this point, it's a small one in the bigger picture we're talking about, is grief, Um, you probably know Martine Proctel's work, Mm -hmm. and his way of speaking about grief as praise if people can stay with their loved one's body, not always possible, but a lot of times it is, it does these amazing things for the grief. It uh-huh. does. It's just like suddenly the fear and the terror and the horror and everything starts to soften out, and people sit with their, sit and talk and sing and hang out and eat. And that's how I got involved in the movement originally was someone asked me to do their memorial service. And when they came, I was on retreat and I was preparing for a wedding because I, I am a ceremonial person. And I kept hearing, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, you know, in my inside my mind. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing for a wedding. It's just weird. And then I got home and my husband forgot to tell me that they called and said that this friend was dying Mm -hmm. so in the morning I got a call that she died and they wanted me to come and I walked up and there were rose petals all over the sidewalk and I walked in and it was scary a little scary back then. And she was on her bed dressed in this beautiful dress with flowers all over her and rose petals. People were sitting and meditating with her. People were cooking in the kitchen, including her sister cooking bacon, which would have freaked her out. People were outside decorating the casket. It was a paper one. And I went, oh, oh, this is how it could be. Mm -hmm. And it just shifted something in me and made me want to support that happening for other people. So um, I'm not holding that concentration so much now, but we have really um, great end-of-life doulas on our team. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are ways to ritualize death that will help us return it to our communities and to our earth.
0: Mm. If I had a uh, loved one who was dying, I mean, I don't know, it feels kind of weird to me to, to invite some person from outside the family as a doula or something like that. Um, to come in,
1: yeah. It, it, some people try to, the thing is that people burn out. You know, we're just talking about the nuts and bolts. It's, uh-huh. a, lot, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to help someone die uh, at home. And so we have hospice where we are, we have an amazing hospice of Santa Cruz County, mm-hmm. but they're not there all the time. Mm-hmm. And so a doula really does the same thing. And I'm not the first person to say this at all, but at birth and at death, mm-hmm. there's like, uh, they are, can be helpful. Mm-hmm. They can normalize things. Because mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that's scariest about people dying is normalizing that process that goes on. And so um, if a family can do it or friends, great. You know, I think it's just that there's going to be more and more uh, people coming down the line. The silver tsunami, it's called. The mm-hmm. silver tsunami of people who are going to be dying. And um, the people to help with that oftentimes a family can't always take care of everything. So I think that this is an organic role that's coming out.
0: I see. Yeah. Yeah. And in former times there were strong communities had people who would do that and and you'd have extended kin networks and it was, and death was more normalized anyway. And and that role wasn't really necessary, but we are not in that situation right now. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think one of the things is that it goes the other way as you think so often that because we feel that a change is needed what is that prayer going to look like and it's going to look like communities having to come together to Mm -hmm. serve each other in this way green burials you know it's like people want to serve they want to um be be with and um, So that's, I think, uh, one of the forthcoming things from the movement as it's unfolding.
0: Mm.
1: So let's touch back into the terror, all right?
0: Okay. Because
1: I think that's um, maybe one of the most important points. Um, We have resources on the Natural Death Care Initiative website. There are enormous resources online, great people doing work, um, but the terror is the thing that we can talk about right now that maybe isn't getting talked about as much. And that's really important
0: to me. You know, it I just hit me like it's so obvious. The thing that's going to really ease that terror is going to be me being present at the death of people I really love. Mm-hmm. I was not present at my grandparents' death. You know, they, uh, gosh, I was out of the country, I believe, for both of their deaths. Uh, yeah, I was living abroad and I mean, I was close to them, but I never had that experience with them. And I was I wasn't present to them. Uh, and I guess this might be an example of turning toward, toward it. Uh, and I don't know, uh, you know, I've had uncles die and stuff, but again, I was not real close with them and I wasn't present for that. I guess what I'm saying is that the terror, and again, like, this isn't something that dominates my whole being, but it's this thing that's there all the time.
1: Oh, right? I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. I think everybody will understand that. Yeah. <laughs> it's paid any attention.
0: So so that terror, I think, is really, a lot of it is just the fear of the unknown and, and a consequence of death being so hidden away. Because in former times, death was all, I mean, you know, you saw corpses a lot, uh, not to mention being in closer proximity to domestic animals and, and wild animals, you know, being closer to, the, to, to nature in like death was much more familiar. And I just can, you know, I have some, some small experience of being in the presence of death and how deepening it is and how it reveals what's important and what isn't. And yeah. um, that's the medicine. I don't think there's any magic bullet besides that. And the people who are the least afraid of death that I've met are people who have gone through near-death experiences, who have actually been dead, you know. And a lot of them are, are, they say things like, I didn't want to come back because it was so beautiful. But, you know, they had something to do here, so they came back. And they're almost looking forward (laughs) to dying again.
1: Yeah, I feel like I um, i don't know about that. All I know about is what it's like when people are dead and the people around them, they've died and the people around them are are heartbroken and they can be become uh, less afraid mm-hmm. by being there. And there's something about a kind of respect. You know, you talk about it when you talk to some of your folks about this thing of the respectfulness, and there is a way of being respectful. Not that it isn't a mess sometimes when people die, I'll tell you it is, because not I'm not talking even so much physically, although my funeral home funeral trainer, Jerry Grace Lyons, she has dealt with everything. She is so amazing. But families go uh, kind of wonky,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and friends and things because it's um, they're afraid, And so they sometimes, sometimes it's just a pretty tough uh, situation, but there's something about being with the dead that is really, it it calms, it calms you. What I think though, that all the spiritual traditions are really pretty much about this in some ways. You know, um, in... Sufism, it's called die before you die, mm-hmm. you know, and the annihilation of our small self that wants to be, um, wants to be important and wants to have importance. And so um, in the Sufi tradition too, it's called um, the, meri- the wedding day, uh, the death day is the wedding day, mm-hmm. that, re- that rejoining. So I feel like I got a little off topic where we were, but there was something in there that I wanted to aim toward, of how being present with death will be healing for all of us. That's sort of where I wanted to come around to. And um, I know you think about things or contemplate things in a way that's much more complex than very many people. And um, that complexity applied here is necessary for it to be real. I'm glad that you're thinking about it and reflecting about it and speaking about it.
0: I think it will help. You said you were close to death when you were a young child.
1: Yeah, I, I've had, um, in different ways, I, I've had... Um, well 12 plus auto accidents and one of them when I was young was kind of knocked me out of my whole awareness for decades in a way and uh, I used to retreat quarterly I wish I still did it was a great help but I was retreating down on our um, land and I realized my grandmother died in 1983 I think it was and this was maybe 10 years ago. And um, part of me hadn't gotten that she died. Mm-hmm. That I was seven or eight when I, I hit a dashboard with my face. Mm-hmm. and And somehow she hadn't realized that. And in this retreat, she f- realized it. I realized it and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, recovering her that she was, I, I, I was grieving, I was grieving. And then I was, um, had an immune disorder. I got um, poison oak, cause I lived back in Ohio. Uh-huh. Poison oak and it became a strep infection and then it became an immune disorder. And so for four years or so, I was in, in and out of the hospital and had a lot of pretty grisly things mm-hmm. done. And no one was talking about that I was close to dying. Mm-hmm. But I think we know that, you know, we know something. I I knew something big was going on. I just didn't know what. Mm-hmm. And then I've had some other hospital experiences that were um, pretty frightening and alienating. So I'm not sure if that tuned my radar to death more than other people's. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. It's hitting me also that there are a lot of people out there under the facade of normality who are seriously ill whose loved ones are seriously ill who have you know severe medical conditions who are in terrible pain who have had close brushes with death and you look at them you know there they are driving to walmart you know there they are pulling into dunkin donuts you know there they are just normal regular people and they're carrying these experiences with them and it just hit me that if it weren't for that this society would have already exploded. Yeah. Because what people put up with in this world, I don't know how they do it. I don't know where they get the, the reservoir of, of fortitude and patience. And um like there is a lot of transformation happening. People are in these intense crucibles and developing their developing emotionally, spiritually, et cetera, through this suffering you know because people were also isolated from each other we can't see it happening but there's a tremendous initiation going on and i guess it's always been going on
1: yeah it's always yeah. been going on we just awaken to it you know i mean I don't, I don't know about you but even even the dunkin donuts people i just have to bow at their feet that they are they're going on yeah. let alone, you know and and the people around us who are working so ardently and courageously for change and for awakening. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. It is. Yeah. It's, I didn't mean it
0: condescendingly at all. You know, no,
1: no, no. I didn't think you did.
0: Yeah. Did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a tough road, you know? Someone said, be kind. Everybody is a. Uh, I forget, rowing a hard boat or something like that. Uh-huh. I forget the saying. And and I think that's where compassion and so much emphasis on compassion. You know, it's everywhere you turn, every tradition, every... And the Sufi tradition I'm part of, I can only be part of it because it's interested in how it all connects, mm-hmm. how they, how they all connect. But everyone says that compassion is going to be one of those... In a, we can't leave that ingredient out. It's just not going to work <laughs> without mm-hmm. it. Without it, so.
0: What's the source of compassion for you? Where does it come from? Because we can't just tell people to be more compassionate. Like that's mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in what the field is that compassion. gives birth to compassion. Yeah, the conditions for compassion.
1: Well, an outer one is the fortune to have the condition to be able to even think about it. You know, like I was taking a, a car somewhere and I was talking to the person driving driving me and I, I said, what do you like about it? They come from some other country. And he said, there's no war here. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, wow, I'm griping about, you know, no gluten, something or other, right?" <laughs> you know? And so I think it comes from... Um, the place of recognizing that we're all, it's all one that the field of unity and that expanse of that. There is no other as many people have said Mm -hmm. there isn't an other. And when we can experience that really experience it, not have the idea of it, but really experience that, that is compassion. You know, that is compassion. What else could we feel?
0: My uh, personal mantra is, what is it like to be you? Yeah, for me, that's kind of, that's what brings me to, to compassion, you know, to put myself in another person's shoes. What is it like to be you? Not that I would pretend to ever fully be able to do that. And, oh, I know what it's like to be you, but there, that is an innate human capacity to feel what it's like to be somebody else. And especially when another person is open to being felt and received in that way.
1: I think that is compassion, that exact thing. And, and could we also say um, what does it feel like to be that hawk? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to be the Earth?
0: Yeah, no, I, I do that not just with human beings, but with uh, even like rocks. Rationally, I, there's no way I could know what it's like to be a rock. The philosopher Daniel Dennett would say it's not like anything to be a rock <laughs> uh, because it's a, you know just a thing. But I guarantee that if you go out there and make the attempt to feel what it's like to be a rock that something will happen to you. All the more, maybe not more, but in a different way, gosh, I mean, maybe that's one reason why people avoid death and avoid being in the presence of death because that innate compassion then is on the dying person. And what is it like to be in, in, in that person's bed? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. It's pretty tempting to turn away from that.
1: Yeah. Well, there are lots of things that it's so tempting to turn away from. And that's why it's so amazing to have companions and support for people who are just mm-hmm. marching into the fire, you know, just, you know, and why yeah. the poets talk about that so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important, like the the understanding that it really takes a community to even be able to face death, like the are... The modern culture, again, the cult of the separate self wants to make it into this heroic thing that you do. I'm gonna face it, I'm not gonna turn away, I'm gonna face into it. Well, who is this I that does the Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, and when you're honest with yourself, like at least me, when I'm honest with myself, anything that I've ever done that was brave was because there was a field of courage around me, holding oh. me to be that pr- brave person. It's much easier to be brave, and when someone's watching you, I mean, just that simple. When you know somebody's watching you, and this for me, this might be the the key to it all. Um, whether we're talking about death or pretty much anything else, to let go of it's not just like the heroic archetype. Um, I mean, so much goes along with it: the self-reliance, the independence. Um, I mean, on another level, it's the conquest of nature. It's the imposing, not that we shouldn't have some boundaries, you know, but the conquest of the world, where on some level, it's me against the world. And it doesn't have to be that way.
1: Yes, you and I think you've written and talked about that beautifully, this whole thing of separation, Mm -hmm. where there's a possibility of that it might work for someone to have more. And so, yeah. and me to have more. I mean, it's just faulty. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's just fundamentally flawed, and yeah. um, leads to where we are now. So
0: yeah, and it depends on on a delusion that is only temporary. That there is that there even is this me, you know, this or that me is who I think me is, uh,
1: which is certainly not who, we, who, who no, me is. Not.
0: <laughs> no. Whatever he is, if anything, it's not, it's not just this.
1: It's true, and yet all those things, the practices and the, the things that are like boats that carry us across, it leads into the mystery. We don't know, and that's, that's hard. Not mm-hmm. knowing, being able to hang with a not
0: knowing. Now
1: yeah. there's courage. That, that's-
0: and, and, and whatever does happen on the other side of death, I'm sure that it is, in some way, necessary that we don't know, because
1: hmm. that gives. What do you us, think?
0: Because that gives gives us the opportunity to, for one thing, to go on an adventure. Like it's not an adventure if you know what's going to happen. If you know everything that's going to happen. <laughs> you know then it's like a tour of Disneyland. It's not an adventure. <laughs> that's different. Secondly, the uh, inner processes that have to unfold when the possibility of that terrible possibility is there, like that is, is an important growth stimulant for the soul. Mm-hmm. So I think it's no accident that there's a veil. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I haven't thought about it that way, but that's yeah. a very interesting...
0: The veil is a gift. It's a gift. Otherwise, we wouldn't get the full benefit of death.
1: Huh. huh. Possibly i don't know i'll have to reflect i don't know i just made it up yeah 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 (laughs) you
0: know
1: it was a good makeup (laughs) yeah yeah and the and the the um were you at your children's birth or i mean yeah
0: Yeah. well
1: you know it's like it's magic time yeah and if people are there even if things happen that go wrong it's still magic time it's like that at death too Mm -hmm. It's. um yeah. It's, it's a different reality. And so those veils, the thinning of the veils, all the different. There's so much in the literature, you know, about it and mythology. It's, It's a real thing to experience that change.
0: Yeah, those were the four best moments of my life.
1: Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, such big <laughs> magic when they they come out and they're
0: them, they're them, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, Julie, I, I uh, wonder if there's anything that's really um, on your heart that you really want to really say to feel that our conversation is complete in some way.
1: I think that um, almost to a fault, I want to be useful. <laughs> And I've been reflecting, because you remind me a little bit of him. I was only around him once, but um, Buckminster Fuller. Mm. And, um, I mean, you've got to admire someone who was so into what he was saying that he would just pee at the podium. He just you know. But I was thinking about his thing, the trim tab. Mm -hmm. Because I'm from Ohio, and we're pretty practical and also pretty – know if is the right word being of service is a big a big deal for yes me. and so I hope that this has been of service and I hope that um, that we as individuals and as a community and um, as a world are able to turn toward what's needed so that our children will have lives
0: That's kind of... Yeah. Gosh, I really, now I'm wanting to talk about climate change again. I'll just say that our children will have lives. The question isn't, this is what I'm coming to. It's not human extinction or not. It is what kind of world we're going to be in. Um, A living world or a dead world. And this is actually so related to the death question because... Mm, yeah, this is a beautiful thing to, to go to right now. The culture of death avoidance, especially as it, it it is translated into medicine, sees the worst possible outcome of any situation is death. And the, the death of myself, especially. And the worst possible outcome of uh, civilization is that humanity dies out. But I think that there are much worse things that can happen to a person, and to a species, our species. And the worst thing for me is that the mania for self-preservation drives us to preserve ourselves at the cost of all else. And we end up in a world of bubble cities and carbon-sucking machines and um, geoengineering where hydroponics factories, nothing alive, nothing growing except for us, and we survive. And that all comes from uh, an avoidance of death that doesn't see all the other beings on earth as precious. If You can make an argument that says, well, uh, the carbon sequestration contribution of whales and elephants isn't that big, so we don't really need them. They're less important than something else. And we don't, like, what if, what if we could control all the carbon with machines and regulate the temperature by bleaching the sky with sulfur aerosols and do all that. Do we want to? We only can imagine doing that if we don't hold all of life precious. And that is the gift of death, to hold life precious. Anyway, I'm just I just couldn't resist when, you know, will we have a world for our children to live in? I believe that we will. It's just a matter of of what kind of world and the rituals around death invite one kind of world or another kind of world. And that's why, I mean, that's one reason why I see the natural death movement as so important in determining what kind of planet we're going to live on.
1: (sighs) Well said.
0: Thank you for indulging my little speech there. Um, and, and as far as was it useful, I'm so grateful that, that we had this conversation um, and your presence is just really beautiful. Um, thank you. I, I know that important information has been transmitted in
1: thank the you. words
0: and between the words. Mm-hmm. It was a
1: blessing. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Julie. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, and online courses. Thank you very much for listening and I'll be with you again next time.